performance anxiety on the Pantheon Podcast Network, and I am your host, Mark. And today's guest makes me want it to be 1990 again. It's Brenda Sauter, bassist for the band Wild Carnation, The Feelies, Speed the Plow, and The Tripes. But she didn't start off on the bass. In fact, she started off playing the piano before moving to guitar. She began playing with her friends, which makes sense. Music basically defined her friend group at that point. She was playing a lot of folk music. And around that time, Brenda also began playing melodica. Yes, melodica. The instrument all guitarists secretly wish they could play. But one of the groups she was in won a talent show judged by famed New York DJ Cousin Brucie. But there were too many guitars in the bands she was in, so she began playing bass. That proved fortuitous. Because after sitting in with the Tripes, they eventually approached her about joining the band. That started a connection that eventually led to the Feelies, Speed the Plow, and eventually Wild Carnation. Not only did she join the band, she replaced famed bass player Michael Imperioli. He's also dipped his toes into acting. Maybe you've seen some of his work. But it took a little while for Brenda to accept the offer because she didn't have a cassette player in her truck and couldn't listen to the demos. But once Brenda joined, they started working on the debut, Tricycle. She just didn't know she'd be playing bass and singing, too. The album has been remastered and re-released. And in addition to that, there's a treasure trove of extra tracks. And there's more good news. Superbus, the follow-up to Tricycle, will be given the same treatment in the fall. So follow Wild Carnation on Facebook, pick up the album on Bandcamp, and keep checking back for updates. Follow us at Performance ANX on Twitter and Instagram. Help support the show with coffee money at ko-fi.com slash performance anxiety or by buying stuff like shirts, coffee mugs, or shower curtains at performanceanx.threadless.com. So let's jump right into today's episode with Brenda Sauter of Wild Carnation on performance anxiety on the Pantheon Podcast Network. Hi, this is Brenda Sauter from the Feelies and Wild Carnation, formerly of the Tripes and Speed the Plow. And you're listening to the Performance Anxiety Podcast. And please check out our re-release of Tricycle and uh, Superbus that will be coming out in the fall of 2023, both on vinyl. What was just on uh, the radio, so this was total, total serendipity. Um, I was... Uh, I just took my phone and I'm not a, I'm not a big Facebook user, but from time to time I will use it more. Okay. But then there are many times when I just don't even bother or I, I just scroll a little bit and I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. Oh, right. Yeah. So I was just, uh, I just turned it on and, you know, just scrolled down a little bit and I saw, um, all I saw was uh, WPRB John Solomon show uh, with a guest DJ and, and it said, uh, you know, something like, um, you know, I'm on the air tonight till eight o'clock. And I thought, oh, I've got, you know, I'm making, we're getting in dinner mode. So, yeah, I'll just, yeah. I'll just turn PRB on. And then I start hearing and mentioning the feelies. And <laughs> so, so it turned, I'm not sure what time it started, but so it's a fundraiser and it's pitting um, Killdozer against the feelies. And it's all covers. Oh my gosh. So the Killdozer doing a cover and then the Feelies doing a cover. And so the idea was if you wanted to vote, you'd, you'd pledge. Oh. So it came down to eight o'clock was like a, a couple minutes before eight o'clock. He announced that Killdozer had won just by a, 
you know, just by a hair. Oh. But they, they do have to officially compile the numbers I, because of pledges. I guess there could have been pledges coming in, you know, at, at 7.59 or yeah. whatever. So, yeah. but that was the unofficial thing, but it was hysterical. That's <laughs> so awesome. I, you know, I had no idea. It was just serendipity that I just happened God. to turn it on. And, and, you know, there was, there was nothing that I saw that mentioned the feelies or this, you know, this fundraising aspect. That is so wild. <laughs> it was, oh yeah. <laughs> well, and it was a good way to hear all the covers, like all the, you know, some of the recordings I'd forgotten about or didn't realize that John Solomon would have had access to. That's um, amazing. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so, yeah, wow. fun show to listen to. Oh, I'll bet. Oh, man. <laughs> that would have been a great one to, to prep for the show with. Damn. <laughs> yeah yeah well it, it's out there i'm sure it's in the archive pretty soon yeah i'll have to check i'll see have to see if i can find that so so the, the way i normally like to start off is to find out a little bit about how you got into music to begin with I mean, was it something you grew up with was it important to the family did they have a lot going on in the house when you were growing up there were um, there were musicians on my mother's side, and, and actually beyond musicians, uh, singers. So when I was growing up with three older brothers, we all took music lessons. It was just sort of a given that we would we would have music. Okay. And um, they took accordion, I took piano. So my parents didn't actually actively play music, but it was within the extended family. In fifth grade, I took up the guitar. My fifth grade teacher said one day, um, you know, I teach guitar. So if anyone wants to take lessons, let me know. And, you know, I don't know why that resonated with me, but I obviously went home and asked my parents if I could take guitar lessons. <laughs> and they obviously said yes. So that, that was the first string instrument that I played for a long time. So I was playing, you know, the groups that I was in, you know, talent shows or um, the the people who became friends, we all got together through music. Uh, so it was guitar and singing. That was my my first thing. Uh, so that was what was going to be my next question is, were you singing when you were that young as well? Was that something that you started early on? Yeah. Yeah, I was singing. Um, well, the, the lessons, the guitar lessons that I got were... Um, nothing really fancy. So the way that I was taught was through songs, the lyrics and um, chords. So my teacher uh, had a, well, I had a notebook and the teacher would write out, you know, the, a, a song and the chords. And a lot of them were protest songs or really obscure <laughs> folk songs. Oh, um, yeah. Like one of um and you know, like, I hope I have that book somewhere, but I'm not sure if I do. But there was, um, oh, there was there was a folk song about, I can't think of the, the original name of it, but one of those, you know, folk songs, like someone always dies and, you know, there's, there's heartbreak in it. <laughs> right. but it was a song about, a, oh, the Silky, the Silky. Oh. So this was a legendary half man, half animal creature. Okay, and uh, so it's it's a song about the the silky and you know and they 
I think they all end up dying by the end. Um, but that tune, so, so the song that she gave me was that tune, but the lyrics, the name of the song was Hiroshima. Oh, um, so it's a song about a seven-year-old child who has been killed in Hiroshima and he or she is a ghost and wandering around. So it's an anti-war song, but, but man, I was in fifth grade and I'm seeing lyrics and, and singing songs about war and like, wow. Uh, and some, like, and some Joan Baez protest songs. And, <laughs> um, so it was kind of heavy stuff, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> wow. Getting you socially um, conscious early. I guess I, I guess that's the big influence of generally being against war and you know hoping that the world becomes a better place at some point. Uh, so so yeah, it, it was. Um, they were. I was not taught lead guitar at all. It was um, just learning chords and singing along with those chords. When did playing with other people like? And when did forming bands <laughs> come into the picture and and playing out? Uh, that started when I was, well, maybe eighth grade, but, but eighth grade was, wow. was the year of actually seventh grade meeting new friends who played guitar. So we would just play for the fun of it. You go over each other's house and, you know, learn songs together. But as far as playing out, that was more, um, sophomore, junior year in high school. Wow. Um, pretty much the same group of people, but now we were. I guess getting better at what we were doing and doing a little more arranging. Um, but it was more, it was mostly talent shows, whether in the school or there was a, a cousin Brucey talent show oh. that was open to the public. And we, we actually won or we were one of the top winners. So, oh, wow. um, God, I don't even remember what the prize was, um, or, or auditioning to get on a, a telethon. Oh, um, so yeah, that, those were like, um, you know, cable stations back then were, were, um, kind of obscure. And so they would, oh. they would sometimes be uh, a telethon. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Hello, Pantheon podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once, new quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. 
Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Before you skip over this ad, give me one minute. Like most podcasts, I pick sponsors carefully and I use the products that advertise here. Pure Spectrum CBD is a product that has been really beneficial for me. They have a wide variety of great products that can be used on a daily or as needed basis. I've been using the tincture every day and it's been wonderful for easing anxiety. And I absolutely love the isolate. I use it instead of acetaminophen or ibuprofen. And it's worked so well for the relief of aches and pains. They also have soaks, lotions, salves, gummies, and more. Plus, an entire line for fitness recovery. They even have products for your pets. See everything they offer at PureSpectrumCBD.com. And if you have questions, they're there to help. They helped me when I had no idea where to start. After you fill your cart, use code PERFORMANCEANX for 15% off your purchase. Pure Spectrum CBD. Pure Spectrum CBD, Pure Spectrum CBD. Yeah, so it was a lot of, um, well, we did, um, we would play uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, um, some Beatles, Dylan. So we were pretty much folkies. Right, okay. Yeah. <laughs> were you still playing guitar or at that point or had you moved to bass that, yet? That was guitar, yeah. I, I also played melodica. I don't know if you know what a melodica is. I've heard of that, but I'm not sure exactly what it is. Um, John ba John Batiste, although he's not on the Late Show anymore, um, it was his main instrument. So it's a it's a keyboard, but it's very small and it's wind powered. So um, oh, I just picture, picture an accordion has bellows. Yeah. If you just if you tore the keyboard off the off the accordion. And you blew air through it. That's a that's a melodica. So it's very much like an accordion. Okay. Um, but you you supply the air through it. So it's got a little mouthpiece, and you blow air through it, and you press the keys just like an accordion or a piano. So it's smaller um, and lighter, I imagine, too. Then. Oh, very yeah, very small. <laughs> um, so I started playing that. I think that was probably eighth grade. So sometimes I'd play that and the others would play guitars and, and sing. So was that different than the, I mean, did the piano lessons help with that at all or was it completely different? Uh, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, on a melodica, it's only, well, you could play with two hands if you had a, a stand, an adapter where you can just set it on the table and use it that way. But generally you would hold it in one hand okay. and use your right hand to play the keys so, so definitely, yeah, definitely piano, learning piano yeah, is, uh, you know, definitely a good thing for <laughs> approaching melodica. Okay. So when, when did you start picking up the bass and, and playing bass? Uh, that was around age 19, I'd say. So, uh, my family moved and then I met, um, I had a, a new group of friends. Also, I attended art school after um, high school. Okay. So I met 
people there. You know, a lot of people who are into art are also into music. Um, So with that group of friends, again, you know, you just start, you start to form bands and people would kind of come and go in, in that group. There was sort of a core group, but we, most of us played guitar and sometimes I would play keyboard. There was a, you know, electric keyboard, but we had no bass player. Occasionally a drummer would, would sit in, but we really didn't go anywhere. I mean, we had a couple local shows, but nothing, it it kind of fizzled before we really did much. So I took up the bass out of necessity, really. It was like, well, (laughs) we have too many guitars. I'll just take up the bass. But as I was learning the bass, that's that's when the group fizzled. Um... But I decided to keep playing the bass anyway. Um, I took lessons for about six months. And then my teacher said, well, go join a band. <laughs> so that, that was around 80 or maybe 81. But I, I didn't join a band right away. What I what I did was I would go out and watch bands and just watch what the bass player was doing and really sort of zone in to how the bass and the drums were working together like that really fascinated me okay uh you know i would listen to records and just try to figure out what what they were doing like when the kick drum would would hit versus um the the bass so i it just kind of it, it was i found it really interesting and i was very into trying to just get a get a feel for the instrument and and how it relates to the other instruments. So you're going to chose to study. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I and mean, also to you know also to enjoy, but yeah, yeah. You know, just watch what they're doing. Like even where where does the basis typically stand? Oh, you know, just just to kind of take it all in and and just learn from what other people were doing. So it looks to me like the Tripes was your first recording band. Is that the case? Because that's the first thing I could find. Yes. Undiscussed. Yeah. Explorers Hold um, from 83. guys in the tripes so that was also through art school um i i met a woman by the name of noelle and she was friends with well sort of a friend of a friend but so she was friends with uh some of the the Helden people so that Helden is a town where um the feelies and the tripes and the willies and young Wu were all um associated and um uh i'm the first time that I saw the trikes was at Maxwell's. Oh yeah. And I, I might've pinpointed the date. Um, but, uh, anyway, so this friend, Noel, um, told me about, you know, the, the feelies and the trikes and these bands that were coming out of Halden. 
Um, so we went to Maxwell's and Bongos and the tribe. Yeah, the Bongos and the tribes were playing that night. So the tribes were opening for the Bongos, and I just I'd never heard music like that before. <laughs> and and the, yeah, and the clubs that I had been going to, those were mostly cover bands. In fact, I think they were all cover bands, oh, and they okay. would play one or two of their own songs. You know, like typically. It would be a cover band doing Bruce Springsteen or Tom Petty. And then they'd say, now we're going to do an original. And people would kind of just turn off from it. Right, yeah. Um, So this was a very different scene. Like Maxwell's was bands playing their own music. Um, It it was just a, a really great place and a real hub for this other music scene that, like, I never, I had no idea existed. Um, so I, I was just really taken by that whole scene and the sound of the tripes. And um, it's kind of a long story, but the short, the, the short version would be to say that I was given the opportunity to sit in with the tripes when they were um, playing a show in Halden. These various various bands, including some of the members of what would become Yolo Tango, um, would play at a place called the Peanut Gallery. So it was, it was just a bar. It was a local bar. But the deal that they struck up was that they could rehearse there and then in the evening do a show. So this would be a Sunday afternoon rehearsal. And then the bands would take a dinner break and then go back and do an evening show. And then the club would charge admission. Um, so it, it worked out kind of nicely. You know, the, the bar probably would have been fairly empty on a Sunday night. Um, so it, it kind of turned into a little music scene. So I was given the opportunity to um, play with them one Sunday. And then sometime after that, I got up the nerve to approach John Baumgartner the songwriter in the tripes and said, if you ever want a bass player, I'd I'd love to join. And I just left it at that. And then some months later I got a phone call and um, he asked if I wanted to join. And when I got to that first rehearsal, the lineup had changed. You know, I, I was used to seeing the tripes, with um, um, this man named El Bruce was the lead singer. Right, yeah. And Glenn would play drums, but then I, I recall one of the shows I went to, Dave Weckerman from the Feelies, a percussionist, percussionist from the Feelies, was on drums. So I was like, oh, okay, there's a this new guy here. All right, you know. Yeah. And then um, when I actually was joining the band, Dave wasn't there, El Bruce wasn't there, and it was... Um, you know, Bill from the Feelies playing percussion, Stan from the Feelies playing drums. And yeah, so, so wow. yeah, I, I didn't know who they were really right. because yeah. Stan and Bill were not in the original tribes, at least not the tribes that I saw. So I was wondering, well, who are, you know, who are these guys? Like, yes. who, who is this? This is and the band I thought it was. And realize that, oh, okay, these are members of the Feelies and, yeah, so and so the Halden bands, they didn't have a bass player. So it was a really good instrument to have chosen. And then shortly after that, I was asked to join Young Wu 
and also the Willies. So those were those oh. were bands that were coexisting with different personnel, but some crossover personnel. And then eventually the Willies became the Feelies. Like I remember, um, oh. I'm pretty sure it was Bill saying, you know, we're thinking of becoming the Feelies again. Are you okay with that? And I said, sure. So oh, okay. at that point, the the Feelies, the Feelies had done a few shows in 1983. They were playing very sporadically, but also with three drummers. So it was Stan, Dave, and Anton. But sometimes Anton wouldn't play, and Stan would become the main drummer. Well, I, I should say before that, um, Stan sometimes sat in instead of Anton. But then in '83. Uh, the feelies were going to start playing again. Again, it was sporadic, but they didn't want to leave, let any drummers go. So they were going to do these shows with three drummers. Oh my God. Uh, yeah. And actually I, I came across an article where they were quoted as saying, yeah, we're starting to play again and we're thinking of recording. And then that just never happened. So in the meantime, 1983, the Tripes are finishing the first recording um, EP called it Explorers Hold. And so the feelings just kind of, yeah, nothing, nothing happened. And then the next thing was um, 80, I think, yeah, in 84, um, the new feelings started up. Okay. So with Dave and Stan and the, yeah, and, and this was after the Explorer's Hold had come out. And you kind of, you got into the Feelies because the Tribes was comprised of a lot of members of the Feelies then. Exactly, exactly. Okay. So, you know, once you, once you met the people, once you became friends, it was sort of a natural progression to be asked to join the other groups, especially, you know, because they didn't have bass players. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, so the feelies put out a few albums and I believe it was four full length albums and some, some EPs, and all, but the band kind of disbanded in 92. What was the reason for the, the band kind of ending after putting out a, you know, yeah. a decent it, amount of material? Right. It was actually um, 91, July of oh. 91 at Maxwell's. That was our, our last show. And we actually didn't finish our run at Maxwell's. Um, typically, the Feelies would play at Maxwell's around the 4th of July, and we'd do three nights. And um, we I don't recall if it was one or two shows, but we didn't do the last one. And that was basically it. Um, wow. Well, we were... The band was burning out. Um, we were on A&M at that time, and the sales weren't as good as A&M had hoped. So we were kind of, in a way, we were being let go, and in a way, we were kind of dissolving on our own. There, there are bands who play hundreds of shows, like Yola Tango. They're constantly touring and putting out albums. Yeah, um, The Feelies never really wanted to tour a lot. I mean, we, we, we did to support the albums that we were putting out, but I guess we burned out more easily than other bands uh, and, and life, life on the road is, is really tough. I mean, people think it's glamorous, but 
it's it's really it's really taxing and um you might travel all over but for the most part all you see is the inside of a club and whatever vehicle you're traveling in right you know, yeah. home or bus or whatever and you know some people had families and so we were we were not into sleeping on floors and <laughs> traveling you know around the united states to to do long tours um, we were kind of homebodies yeah so so we burned out more quickly than other bands or many other bands would have with um with playing live with touring i mean that that's a uh, understandable reason so, i mean mm-hmm. and so the yeah, next... so I, I, sorry, okay. yeah, I guess we felt we felt like we just weren't going to get anywhere further like you know you, uh-huh. i mean in the previous years you could really feel within the band like wow we're you know our audience is getting bigger we're playing bigger places we're opening we opened for lou reed and rem and you know it's kind of like an airplane taking off and you're you're off the ground you're taking off but then in 91 it just seemed like we weren't going to get any further than where we were okay and especially without the record company behind you or behind us Especially back then, yeah. Mm-hmm. How long after that was it before you were a part of Speed the Plow? Because I think that was the next, it looks like that's the next band you were a part of. And was yes. that something that, that John invited you to, or were you, were you part of the founding of that? I was not part of the founding. So the, the, so Speed the Plow rose up out of um, the non-Feelies members. So there were so the tribes and the feelies were playing simultaneously. Okay. And then as the feelies were playing more, the tribe members, the non-feelies tribe members, <laughs> then formed a group called Speed the Plow. Okay. And others joined the group. So it was um it was uh, John and Tony and Mark from the tribes, and then um they, they did have different personnel on bass and drums, and they put out a, a record which Bill, Bill Million, um, helped produce. And then, uh, yeah, I, I, I can't speak too much about that chapter. Um, I'm not sure how many, how many shows Steve the Plow played at that point. Um, but then they, they kind of disbanded. And, um, I think it was like 91, where well yeah okay 91 right the feelies stopped playing and then speed the plow kind of re reorganized with stan and me in it oh, okay and and um eventually stan left to join luna and then the members of wild carnation filled the openings there crossover in fact a bit of crossover uh between wild carnation and speed the plow so right. so 91 the feelies aren't playing 
speed the plow gets more active and then while carnation forms in 92 and then um rich and chris from wild carnation then join speed the plow we'll be right back after a word from our sponsors Okay, so that that was gonna be yeah. my next question. Was Wild Carnation did they grow out of Speed the Plow, or was Wild Carnation kind of absorbed into Speed the Plow at times? So, yeah, uh, it's more Wild Carnation was absorbed into Speed the Plow. Okay, um, so Wild Carnation came about uh, again through Maxwell's. I was in I was in Hoboken. I was playing with a a singer songwriter by the name of Patty Shaw. And um, she was from New York City, actually still is. And we um, we met each other through Steve Fallon in Hoboken. Steve Fallon was the owner of Maxwell's. Okay. And so she was the she was the main songwriter, and I basically backed her up. I did backing vocals and played bass. And we we didn't do a lot of shows out, but we did some, and we did some recording. And then uh, I was I was at Maxwell's. I'm pretty sure I was there at Maxwell's, having come from a rehearsal with Patty Shaw. And then and the name of that duo was Eva Luna, E V A L U N A. Nothing to do with Luna, right. the, that Stan was in. But I, I had my bass with me, and Yola Tango was playing at Maxwell's, and that was March of '92, and. Um, Chris, who was uh, well, the drummer, not, not okay, um, uh, Chris, <laughs> who would become the drummer of Wild Carnation. So I'm not saying Yola Tango. So, right. uh, so Chris okay. and Rich were at that show, and Chris approached me and said he and a friend were trying to get a band together. Would I be interested? And I said, you know, sure. Um, so Chris gave me a tape, a, a, a pretty simple demo tape of what they were working on. And um, I didn't listen to it right away. And Rich thought that I probably hated it, oh. but it was just that oh. I didn't have a, a cassette player in my little pickup truck. Um, oh. So it took some time. You know, I wasn't listening to it on the way home, but I did call. Actually, when I called, it was April 8th. And um, I said I was interested so April 17th of 1992 was our first rehearsal. So this was um, Rich on guitar, Chris on drums, and me on bass. And I I don't think I even realized that there wasn't a singer. Like, I thought I was just joining as a bass player. Oh, and then really? realized, oh, okay, I'll be, I guess I'll be singing. Um, <laughs> but... <laughs> But it, but it it all kind of came together very organically. Um, so Rich had a you know a huge backlog of songs, but no no lyrics, no melody, or or actually some of them he had a melody in mind, but no one was singing in the band yet. So it was basically just um, drums and guitar, and I'm better or I, I feel more comfortable coming up with lyrics and melody than coming up with chords. So it was a really good, we complimented each other because he was very good at coming up with song structure, you know, the, the chords, the foundation. And I was better at taking something like that and adding 
lyrics and melody. So we just started doing that right from the start. And the conversation was probably like, sure, I'll do lyrics and come up with melody. And um, so it just, it just grew from there. And then our, our goal was to just write songs and then try to play out somewhere. Um, by October of 92, we opened for the bats at Maxwell's. Oh, so it was a pretty, we were launching pretty quickly. And another connection to the Feelies is that Chris studied under Stan Dineski of the, you know, drummer for the Feelies. Oh, and Stan told him one day, go out and find a band. <laughs> and so, you know, that sounds a little familiar. Yeah. Right? Um, so Chris was searching for, um, you know, to form a band and Rich was searching to find a band. So they found each other through placing an ad, you know, well, back then you'd place an ad in a newspaper. Yeah. And then, um, and then the two of them were looking for more people to fill out the band. So the two of them placed an ad and they were, they were, I guess you could say auditioning people, you know, different people would come by and they, they play and either, well, obviously I guess not, nothing really worked out, but one of the people who answered the ad was Michael Imperioli. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> so there is a, there is a, a rehearsal tape of Michael Imperioli and um, oh. Chris and Rich playing and wow. he's given us saying that we can use it, you know, wherever, wherever we'd like. Oh my gosh. Uh, but there was only, well, I guess I, I'm not sure how many songs were actually, how many songs they were working on at that point, but that was 19, that was 1990. And then, um, Wow. And Michael decided to go to pursue acting rather than music. And that was a good call on his <laughs> part because he, you know, he obviously became very successful right. with his acting career. Uh, so then oh Chris and Rich, you know, it's back to just the two of them. And then they got together with, they, they found two people and formed a band called Wow and Flutter. And they did some, um, they recorded a little bit and wow and flutter was playing up until about February of 92. Um, okay. they played various shows in, in New York, the you know, New York, New Jersey area. And then that kind of fizzled out in February. And then I met them in March. So it was a pretty, pretty quick transition for Chris and Rich going from, Michael Imperioli to Wow and Flutter, and then, you know, and then Wild Carnation. That is amazing. Oh, my God. I, I, I hope one day they, they decide to put that stuff, Michael Imperioli, out, because that, that would be fascinating. Yeah, we, um, I mean, right now we're focusing on the re-release of Tricycle, but yeah, certainly we could, we could try to do something with that. That would, um, that would but be just not, sure. you know, you have to do the right thing. Oh yeah. Everyone has to, well, although, you know, like I said, Michael did give his blessing, but we really have to make sure, okay, it, it is really okay with him. True. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, all right. So you mentioned the, the, the first album, Tricycle, that is up out being re-released, remastered, and it's got a whole lot mm -hmm. of extra stuff on it. Yes. And I went 
and and listen to it and it oh my gosh that sound just brought me right back to 9091 it's just that jangly alt pop sound it was that almost rem sound it was just it, it's, it's like a time machine listening to it it was amazing and uh-huh. i loved the way it was rising tide i think that might be my favorite song on that on the whole album. I absolutely love that song, and I love the the live version of that that's on it a little later on in the album. It's- I think that is my favorite track on the album, but there are so many great songs on there. Shaker tune is awesome. Scarf song. I love how the tempo speeds up in, in scarf song. And you've got some really wonderful songwriting in, especially in songs like Susquehanna 142. That is, mm-hmm. So that's about a train. And that mm-hmm. ended up actually on a train compilation album. Did I read that right? Yes. Yeah. The Catskill train, um, I think it was a fundraiser. Yeah, and that was just a few years ago. But yeah, any anything to do with the train, um, I, I believe that they reached out to Chris and then we gave permission to put it on there. So the, the songs, if you listen to this Catskill album, our song is very different. It, it It's really a lot of country type music. Okay. You know, more Johnny Cash like or um, uh-huh. Hank Williams. And then there's this jangly, you know, 12 string uh, <laughs> alternate tuning, you know, on, on our track. So it, it it's, yeah, it's, it's nice being on there, but we're not, we don't, I don't think we really, blend well with the rest of the album but it stands out it, it's noticeable so, <laughs> yeah, so, okay, i guess so <laughs> yeah i guess so that's that's one way to put it but i really like dodger blue because i i don't know i love songs with baseball in them i think it's okay i think those are great how the sun got in my from New Jersey. The album came out in 94 and the Dodgers left New York decades before. How did that song develop? Rich's, well, okay, this is a longer story. I don't know if you want the longer story. So getting back to Michael Imperioli, 
So Michael Imperioli would have a a book with him with lyrics in it. And um, so one of the songs that was captured on this Purcell tape is a song called Dodger Blue. And but um, but Rich and Chris really couldn't hear Michael all that well. But all that they could hear was occasionally him saying Dodger Blue. So they had no idea what Dodger Blue actually meant. Um, <laughs> but but that particular song. So so Rich wrote Rich wrote the song, and then Michael put lyrics and a, a melody on top of it. But then Michael left. And so now it's just back to that original song, which hadn't had a name. Um, so the name Dodger Blue just stuck with it because that's what Rich and Chris were now referring to it as. Okay. So so I I start playing with them and they say, oh, this is a song called Dodger Blue. Uh, again, they're, they have no lyrics, no melody. <laughs> and the first thing I, you know, I, I don't know whether... I knew the whole Dodgers story or whether someone related to me because Rich's father was a, a big Dodgers um, fan. He lived in, uh, he lived in Manhattan um, when he was growing up or at least in teen years. And he was a huge Dodgers fan and he was brokenhearted when they moved to LA uh, as many people were. Yeah. And, um, you know, for, for years was still upset about it. So, so I don't know if it was the story of his father that influenced the song or just learning about the history of, of the Brooklyn Dodgers through, you know, baseball, like the Ken Burns documentary, mm-hmm. Uh, so, how, however, it happened, I I knew of the Brooklyn Dodgers story from having been told or having seen it in a documentary, and um, and I just kind of ran with it. I mean, I I didn't I, I knew some of the basic facts, but in order to have a little more to the song, I just kind of embroidered a little bit, like what would have what it have been like to be one of the players okay, and you know, you're, you're like, you're forced to another place and, you know, and then the, the Dodger, no, no, that was, that was Emmett's, was that Emmett's field where the Dodgers were. Yeah. So anyway, so now the stadium is going to come down. So, you know, some of it is based on fact and then some of it is embroidering a little bit, but after the album came out, there was a review. I don't recall who, wrote this review but they they said um dodger blue could be as much about the feelies breaking up as the brooklyn dodgers being sold to to la oh wow and so i i i mean i guess maybe subliminally it came through but in a way it i i could see that it makes sense you know like the walls came down the, the fans went the fans went home it it could be as much about a band being abandoned by a record company and you know you you're just not doing as well as you had been you know when the fans would turn away and so i i, yeah. I could see that they might you know you see that inferred. within the lyric yeah i'm sorry what, what was that i was gonna say it could be inferred that that it's about the band breakup i could yeah i could see that I, I, yeah or any, anything that kind of comes apart and yeah you can't control it and you have to 
you have to deal with it. So the album has been remastered and being re-released with tons of extra stuff. What brought on the remaster and the idea to, to re-release it? Well, I think every anytime you re-release something, uh, you would remaster it. Well, especially going from um, CD to vinyl. And there are some, well, definitely there, you know, there are releases where they just go right from the CD to vinyl and the, um, the quality just isn't as good. Um, so we put it in the hands of Scott Anthony of Storybook Sound in Maplewood, New Jersey. And um, so you have to, it, it's best to master it with the idea that it's going to vinyl. Okay. Um, just to you know, get the best quality. And he was able to kind of tweak and bring things out. We were looking for a, a slightly warmer sound. Uh, but the when we when we got the um, the digital files and played it through the stereo, so we we well I, I should back up a little bit. We got our acetate and so that that's the test pressing right uh, so we put that on and had the digital files on the computer playing through the stereo and we're we were a being it and mm -hmm. um it sounded exactly the same oh, um wow. the, the album is a little bit quieter because it is the album is slightly long for vinyl and generally if you have longer than the ideal the volume is a little bit lower it's not bad quality it's just you just need to turn the volume up a little bit like if you're playing a cd and or a, a vinyl that's you know like 20 minutes per side it's going to be louder than something that's 25 minutes right. so all you have to yeah. do is turn turn the volume up yeah um, there's, just, but, there's just so much space on on vinyl to exactly yeah. exactly and wizard of truth star that is around that's just under an hour so just under 30 minutes on each side so if todd could do it you know we could do it right <laughs> <laughs> um so so the quality is a is a really exact match at least on our stereo system oh, that's um, awesome. you could not tell the difference between the digital file and the vinyl that uh, is so yeah, awesome. scott did a good job yeah oh, it... and, and does mastering for the feelies oh okay how did you choose the extra tracks because there's a lot of demos and yeah. there's also a bunch like almost an entire live show it seems like uh from 97 yes uh so when when we um realized that okay we're going to be releasing this on vinyl do we have any bonus tracks we just rich and i just started digging through stuff and um <laughs> yeah stuff you know where where are those tapes where's this where's that wow so we came across our original demos, which <laughs> thankfully, you know, things could be extracted from them. So we had demoed pretty much all the Tricycle album back in mm, probably 93 or so, 92, 93. Uh, so that when we went to the studio, we had our, we had our act together. Yeah. Um, so we had those demos and then, um, the live performance was from a tour that we did in Germany in January, February of 92. And that was um, from Knust 
in Hamburg. The name of the club was Knust. Ah, okay. Um, K-N-U-S-T. Uh, so luckily that sound person had thrown a tape in or maybe it was even a dad. We're not, we're not really sure, but we ended up with that show, you know, recorded live. It is a line recording. So, uh, so Scott, I should say that Scott Anthony remastered the body of, um, of tricycle and then Delmore had someone remaster those live tracks and the demos. Um, so they were able to improve the quality okay. of, uh, of both, but again, but unfortunately with a line recording in, in a club, you're getting, you're getting the feed through the microphones. So the guitars uh, are, the sound is kind of, you know, it's, it's way in the background. Oh, um, okay. gen- generally at a club, the instruments won't come through the sound system as much as the vocals. So typically coming through the mix through the console uh, would be the vocals, some drums, and just a little bit of guitar. Bass is often direct, so that goes right into the line. Um, So guitars are kind of, because the guitars are generally, the amps are loud enough in the room and they don't need too much supplementing. Okay. Vocals are, you know, almost entirely supplemented. Oh, I, see. I didn't know yeah. any of this. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So ideally, if there was more guitar on it, it would have been really, it would have been much better. But, but there's more guitar presence than there was on the original. So wow. it was a step in the right direction. Well, I was going to mention, and and you just explained it that I can hear the the bass seems more upfront in the live tracks, and it sounds yeah. really good. I really like it. <laughs> too they're just way out front and i mean our our approach has been more that vocals are a layer and that's kind of like the the tripes and rem um the feelies at least on the good earth um that the vocals shouldn't be way way out front they're another layer of the whole sound the live recording also has some really interesting things in it you you do some covers and mm-hmm. some originals that are early versions of songs that ended up on Superbus, which yes, I thought was really interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually, uh, Super. Now that you mentioned Superbus, Superbus is coming out on vinyl in the fall. Oh, awesome! Uh, that will be on Pine Hill Records. Uh, so that's um, that's at the manufacturer now, and we should be. Uh, getting a test pressing in a, in a few weeks. Oh, so that's it's kind of yeah, that's that's off off and running as well. Oh, I was listening uh, to that. Yeah, today. so 97, 97 was in between tricycle and then what would eventually become Superbus. Yeah, you mentioned that there, there's like a was it a twelve year delay between the two albums? Yeah, is there um, was it 
were you playing with Speed the Plow? Or was there a, a reason that there was such a, a big gap between albums? Uh, well, there was Speed the Plow in between. Um, the main gap was that Rich and I had a son oh. in 2000. So, so Superbus was actually recorded in 2000 at the Pigeon Club in um, in Hoboken. And James Mastro was the, the producer of it. Um, he, yeah, he produced the album. Uh, so I was actually pregnant the whole time that we were recording. (laughs) We started recording in April. No, maybe, no, May actually, May of 2000 and then finished up around October. So the last thing that we were doing was the vocals and I was, you know, pretty pregnant at that point. (laughs) Um, so yeah, no wonder our son is is very into music because yes. that's all. I mean, he was hearing hours and hours of <laughs> singing while he was while he was inside. Oh, that is um, awesome! Well, yeah, I... so kind of like John and Yoko, um, it wasn't deliberate. I think we figured, all right, we'll have a, you know we'll have our baby and then we'll we'll start playing out again. And that's just not. I mean, if you have a nanny, um, <laughs> it might be more realistic. But neither of us really, I mean, you know, you just get so wrapped up and attached to your child that you're not even thinking about other things. Yeah, Um, you you can't just get up and go on tour. Right, right. I mean, some people do, but um, but that just, that wouldn't have been natural for us. So, So it was done. It was, you know, all the recording was done and we had our, our master and it sat until... 2006 or actually probably more like 2005 and then by the time it was released you know now with the, you know the manufacturing artwork acetates and everything yeah. it was uh 2006 and we just released it on our own we, we couldn't find anyone who was interested oh wow really? Uh, so we just started we put a couple ads out and started selling it on our own but oh you know, obviously, God. not a lot of copies sold. I've, I was listening to it today. It's on YouTube, and I was listening to it today, and I really like it. Catch a it curve thinks. is great. Mm-hmm. I love the yeah. Meadowlands. The Meadowlands is oh yeah, yeah, awesome. That sounds so spooky, and it's kind of fitting for the Meadowlands because growing up in New Jersey, I, I grew up hearing a lot of stories about all the dead bodies like the dumping ground or or, or in the swamps around the meadowlands when it was I don't Um, that's based on a book. Oh, what's his name? Um, John uh, Sullivan. It's John Sullivan. It's a book called The Meadowlands, and it was an incredibly good book. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, I highly recommend it. Um, so the song was inspired by, you know, um, after reading the book called The Meadowlands. And so a lot of the description in there is you know, inspired by his book. Oh, wow. I'll have to check that out. 
Yeah, yeah. It's it's a really good and it, it's a fairly fast read, but so it just gives you a lot of history of the Meadowlands and also um, parts of New York City, because basically the Meadowlands was a dumping ground for New York City. Yeah. So old um, old train stations are dumped at the bottom there. Jeez. The old I guess it was the Penn Penn Station was dumped there and oh in the book um well i don't want to give too much of it away but <laughs> he he sees some of the things that have been dumped there wow. and this, this description is just incredible oh i'm gonna have to check that out that mm-hmm. sounds fascinating yeah we've got the uh the debut re-released with the bunch of extra tracks you, you mentioned that you're working on the follow-up so is this it for wild carnation or are you guys going to play any live shows to support the releases or yeah um well if anyone wants us to play sure um, <laughs> it's it's you know post pandemic it's a little more difficult even the feelies have to wait a long time to play somewhere because there's so many bands trying yeah. to play again and i believe that there are fewer clubs because some of them just didn't make it through uh, you know, didn't stay in business after the pandemic. That's um, a good point. So it's just, yeah, I believe the scene is not as healthy, depending on how you look at it. I mean, there are some clubs that are doing well, and there are new places opening up, but they're they're bigger clubs, very professional, um, not so much like the clubs that were from the eighties, right? Um, where you could pretty easily play at you know various various places in new york or new jersey oh yeah um so we're hoping to have a few shows in asbury park over the summer we were our the last show we were supposed to do was um march 13th of 2020 and we all know what happened that friday the 13th um that's when everything shut down so instead of heading to um perform in maplewood new jersey we were going to college to bring my my son home or our son home because everything was shutting down wow so yeah yeah so it was just you know the timing was just uh, unbelievable jeez that's uh yeah <laughs> well hopefully there's some places playing uh or play, play places opening up for you to play um like you said i know there's there's a huge demand and not a whole lot of locations so what is, um yeah so we will play wherever we can what yeah. is the the best way for people to find the album to order it and listen to it and is there a, a social media uh, presence for wild carnage yeah so this was a record store day release this this particular this particular release okay so there um there were 500 copies made 475 went out and there are we're getting feedback from people that they can't find it at this point discogs has it but very few copies are left i would say go to the delmore recording society bandcamp page and you know i I haven't personally gone there but i believe you can order through there and we are working on having a second pressing, although that's not official, but that is what we are 
attempting to do. So I guess one, okay. once these 500 copies are definitely all sold, then that opens it up to do a second pressing and get that out there, um, okay. you know, I guess, uh, as soon as we can. In the meantime, the digital download will be available for purchase. While Carnation does have a Bandcamp page, but right now it's very minimal because um, we didn't want to, not that it will be a breach of contract, but putting putting things up for sale, the timing would not be very good to have done that right around record, record Store Day uh, 2023. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So we're waiting a while. There are just like three, just a few songs that are available some from compilations and just i think there's one track from superbus one track from tricycle and that's it for now but we will eventually you know when it's when it's the right thing to do we will put all of our music on Bandcamp. Um, it was set up just to kind of get it just get it going get it up there and operating Right, and then we'll eventually feed more things on on there. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. I, at the time of this recording, it is up for pre order for the digital album for Wild Carnation. Like I said, on the uh, demo recording society Bandcamp page, so it is it is up there, and okay. you can pre order it as we record this podcast. So by the time it comes out, it might be up, but who knows? I would, I would okay. see a, a, yeah, a it's supposed to be this coming uh, this oh. coming Friday. There we go. Yeah, I see it right now. April 20th. So it, by the time this comes out, it'll definitely be up and, and ready for purchase. So, mm-hmm. Okay. Is yeah, that, and then there'll be more vinyl, and then Superbus will be in the fall on vinyl. Oh, you, Re, you know, again, remastered. I was about to ask, are you doing the same thing where you, you, hey, you have bonus material for that, or is that just going to be pretty much just the album? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure right now. Um, we're hoping <laughs> that there will be bonus tracks so Superbus, much like um tricycle we demoed just about every song so there are um you know pretty solid demos of all the Superbus material oh cool that is awesome yeah. and is there a social media presence for the band yeah uh so we're on facebook so while carnation yeah just go to facebook and then type in while carnation um, okay. you should see a photo of two matchbox cars in a garden. Uh, we also have, um, a secondary Facebook page, which shows the cover of tricycle. So it's a, it's a tricycle with, with green Ivy in the background, okay. um, either one, but the most active page is, is the one with, uh, the matchbox cars. So it's kind of like, that's big, the super bus cover, right? The Superbus cover, right? Okay, cool. And uh, so we're, we also do have a website, wild, wildcarnation.com, although that's not as active as Facebook, but you can reach us there as well. Okay, awesome. Yeah, and then, yeah, check out Bandcamp, but uh, again, there's not there's not, there's not a lot going on there right now. Right. But there will be. Excellent. Well, I've really enjoyed the album. I'm looking forward to hearing the next remastered version of uh, uh, the, the remaster of Superbus, And the sound is fantastic. It just brings me back to my like late high school, college days. So 
I, I love it. So thank well, you. Thank you. Thank you for, for re-releasing it and uh, kind of bringing me back to a, a wonderful time. So I, I'm just oh, enjoying yeah. this. Thanks. Thanks. And actually the jangle sound goes back to the, the sixties with the birds. Right. Yeah. The, um, with the Rickenbackers. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And that's, what's on these albums. It's a 12 string Rickenbacker. Oh, um, and someone there. called it, um, a fan called it jangle pop bliss. <laughs> I, so like I, I love that. that. I love that term. I like that. I'm going to use that as a hashtag on this thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, Thank you so much for spending your evening with me and, and talking about some wonderful music. And, and I definitely want to go check out the Meadowlands book and, and give that a read, too. Absolutely. Yeah, well, it's been my pleasure as well. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.